you have a Bible with you, please open it to Exodus chapter 32. It must be a very strange thing to be the child of a president of the United States. I'm sure that most of these kids, these men don't come from, from terribly humble beginnings, and most of these kids were raised in affluence, and they had much of what they needed given to them, and anything that they could possibly want was likely given to them. But it must be odd to have the ear of the most powerful man in the world, to be able to go to him and ask him for a favor and know that he could probably pull some strings and to make that happen for you. I wonder what that would be like to know that you can go to somebody of just immense power and get them to change laws or to operate the United States differently simply because you've asked them to. As wonderful as, as that might be, we certainly have something that's better than even that. We, we don't have the ear of a man who is limited by Congress and space and time, who's limited by his own frail humanity, but we have our mighty Lord Jesus Christ that we can pray to and ask for things, that we can go to the most powerful person, not only in the world, but in the cosmos, who reigns over all things and ask him and request things from him, to go and to thank him for who he is. And so we've turned to prayer in this present study to think through and to figure out what the implications of how we ought to pray, why we ought to pray are, so that we might be a church that's better at prayer, that we might have more fervent prayers, that we might have more intelligent prayers, knowing what God wants us to pray, and even more biblical prayers, which is why we are going to be going kind of sporadically throughout Scripture, looking at different types of prayers that have been uttered by different types of people, not to bring something to them, but to see what they can teach us about how we ought to pray. And so today as we come to Exodus 32, we are going to be looking at something we call intercessory prayer. And that is prayer that we pray on behalf of other people. So it's not a prayer for me. When I pray for myself, I'm not interceding for myself. That's a weird thought. I guess I kind of am, but I'm not actually interceding, right? When we pray for others, we are interceding before God on their behalf. So we come before God and we, we say we've, we're going to pray for John and Susie and Kelly and Brian or something like that, and we are interceding on their behalf before God. This is intercessory prayer. And it is an important type of prayer. It's a prayer that we realize we do all the time. The question is, do we do it well all the time? We come today to a text where one of the chief characters of the Old Testament, Moses, in a very famous example, is going to intercede for the people of Israel before God. But before we get to the text, we kind of need to set up the background to this. And to do this, we're going to go, because it will be a quick trip, all the way back to the beginning and God's creation of mankind. And as he creates mankind, we realize that he creates them well. Everything is good. It is very good. God approves of all that he has created, but mankind falls. And while Genesis doesn't actually use the language of the fall, we realize, as we've been reading in our community groups, that a fall is exactly what happens. There is now death introduced. There's murder introduced. There's evil in their hearts continuously introduced by the time we get to Genesis 6. And then even the salvation of Noah and his family is to demonstrate the totality of the fall, that even the most righteous person, even the man of integrity, Noah, still was sinful because sin flows out of him. It infects everybody. And then God, 
while it infects everybody, calls a sinner in Abram to himself. And he begins to promise Abram great things. He says to Abram, listen, I am going to bless you. And I'm going to bless all the nations through you. And the one who blesses you, I will bless. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And he says, look up at the stars in the sky and think about the sand and the seashore. If you can count those, then you can count the number of people that I will bless through you. An immense amount of blessing goes through Abram. And the rest of Genesis tracks the story of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is changed his name to Israel. We, we look at the way God blesses them, and eventually he moves his people down to Egypt, as he told Abram in the first place. I am going to move your people, the people who will come from you, your nation, I will move them down to Egypt. And eventually, it is to save them from famine, but there is a Pharaoh who comes to the throne who does not know Joseph. He does not know the people of Israel. And so because of that, he enslaves the people of Israel. And after 400 years, God comes back and he visits Moses in a bush that is burning in the desert. And he says, now you are going to go and you are going to ransom my people. You're going to rescue my people. You're going to redeem my people from Pharaoh. And God, through Moses, comes with ten mighty plagues, eventually allowing the Israelites to leave Egypt, to go to the Red Sea, to pass through the Red Sea while he crushes all of Israel's enemies, and leading them up to Mount Sinai, where he will give them not only the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, but he will further give them more ordinances and more laws as he reveals himself to them. By the time we get up to Exodus 32, Moses has provided to them the Ten Commandments, and then he has disappeared back up the mountain. As he has disappeared up the mountain, we pick up in Exodus 32, where we read this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? We don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have worshipped, they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? 
Why should the Egyptians say with an evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of our God. There's many things that we would like to note as we'll go through the first 10 verses of this to sort of set the groundwork before we talk about Moses' actual intercession. The first thing is that the people here are clearly confused about the role of Moses and his relationship to God. They come to Aaron and they say to Aaron, up, make us gods. Because, notice, we don't know what's happened to Moses. Okay? So, at the very least, Aaron's job is confused and the people's relationship with Moses is confused. They want gods to help them because Moses has gone up. They don't say, we don't know what's happened to Yahweh. They don't say, we don't know what's happened to the God who brought us out. They say, we don't know what happened to Moses. And so because we don't have Moses before us anymore, we need something to lead us. We need something to guide us. We need something to direct us. And so make us a calf. Make us an image of God that he might lead us and he might move us and he might take us away from this place so that we can worship to him. Not only is there confusion over the role of Moses, because clearly they think that Moses is linked somehow to God, and it's pretty obvious that There's a reason why. Every time they saw God act, they saw God act through Moses. It's true. They did see a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. It is true that they saw God protecting them outside of Moses, but the vast majority of the time when they saw God work miracles, they saw it through Moses. It was Moses who brought down the plagues. It was Moses who reached out his staff over the waters and divided them. And so they were clearly confused about Moses and and the way that God related to them through him. And they were also confused about Aaron. Aaron's job as a priest, was to bring God to the people. He was to organize sacrifices and offerings so that the people would be able to come to God by God's own mechanism. But instead, what do we have here? We have the people going to Aaron, telling Aaron the kind of God that they want. It's not that much different than what we talked about very quickly in the fall. There is an order of things. God Moses, Aaron, the people, but what do we have? We have an inversion of that. The people are coming to Aaron and telling him to make them a way to interact with God so that they can have the God that they want. The confusion here is evident. And we're not concerned that God had left them, that the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, had departed from them. Yahweh had departed from them. And what's even worse, they use gold jewelry. Now, it's not simply to explain where the gold jewelry came from. That's not the purpose of mentioning that. We know, 
or it's not, the purpose isn't to explain how did they get the gold for the calf. The purpose is to remind us of where that gold jewelry came from. That gold jewelry came because as the Lord, not Moses, as the Lord was leaving or was moving them out of Egypt, they were allowed to plunder the Egyptians. The Egyptians took off their gold jewelry and handed it to the Israelites as spoil and as plunder to help them on their way. And what do we find them doing? Them taking the good things of God and immediately making them into something that they shouldn't have done. They're making them into idols. Simply as a, as a way of stopping us here, thinking through that, the good things that God had given to them, they took and they turned into an object of worship. Listen, this is something very, very easy for us to fall into. It's an easy trap. There are many good things that God gives us that we are to take in, that we are to partake of, but that can easily be turned into things that we worship in them, their own right. Since sleep is good, you've gone without sleep for any of a, a number of days, you know how good sleep is. If you've had to study and you've finished your final exams, you, you know how good sleep is. If you've had to work nights and you weren't accustomed to it yet, you know how good sleep is. Yet sleep can be worshipped in such a way that you simply become a sluggard. You simply become lazy. And you worship the downtime rather than what God has given to you to enjoy for God's sake. Food is a good thing that God gives to us. It becomes very easy to treat food not as something to praise God for, but as something to be praised in itself. That is the essence of gluttony. It's not just eating too much. It's caring too much about food and not enough about the God who gives us food. It can happen with influence. Influence is a good thing. God can give us influence in people's lives, but that influence can easily be turned into pride and thinking that influence is the thing to be thankful for and not the God who might give it to you. Sports, family, any of these things can easily be turned from good things into idolatry. The good things that God gives us are easily turned in our hearts to things that we worship. The people here do exactly that. They go to Aaron. They tell Aaron what kind of God they want. Aaron makes it for them from the good things of God. And in their confusion, they simply do not listen to the voice of God. And so God responds to them and he says, Moses, your people have gone astray. Now, there's a way to read him saying that from every parent in the room who has dealt with their spouse before with their kids Nose is an ironic and funny way of talking, right? When my children act up, they are not my children, but they are Breeze, okay? When they act well, they are mine. And I do this with my daughter even, because now that we have a dog, I will look at her when she wants to go outside and say, Lily, your dog needs to go outside. It's a way of passing off responsibility to the other person. And there's a way of reading this where it seems like God is kind of being funny, saying, it's not my people, Moses, but your people. You're going to have to deal with this. But I don't think that's actually what's going on. It's too heavy of a situation for God to be funny. He is certainly being ironic. The people are confused about Moses' relationship with God. They're, they're wondering if maybe Moses departing means that they need a new image for God, as though Moses himself was the image of God. And so when God comes to him and he says, your people who you brought out, it meant to instigate in Moses' mind what is exactly going on down there. Why are they my people? Why are you calling them mine? 
simply said, God talking this way acknowledges the confusion among the people. He acknowledges the fact that they are, they are completely astray. They don't have the faintest idea what is going on. And he says, I will crush them. I will take them away from my presence. And I will let you become the new nation. And that allows for us to see Moses' intercession. Three things to say about Moses' intercession briefly. First, you need to know the point of intercession. We can be pretty hard on the Israelites here, and we ought to be hard on the Israelites. The Israelites did a pretty detestable thing, so much so that the, the wrath that God was going to pour upon them was deserved and good. And if he did choose to wipe them off the face of the earth, he would be right to do so. However, let's realize some of the background of the Israelites and know the difficulty that they came to here. They haven't known this God very long. It's been 400 years of silence from God. What they have known is polytheism. What they have known is idolatry. What they have known is a tit-for-tat relationship with any of the gods that are very capricious and they're fickle in what they do. You can't tell what God is going to give you from one day to the next. There is no faithfulness with the gods of the world like there is with Yahweh their Lord. Fickle gods produce fickle people. Polytheism means that you can jump from God to God until you find one who gives you what you want. Tack on to that the fact that they're probably very fearful. They are literally living in tents out in the desert, right? They've already had the nation of Egypt come and try and attack them. They will have more than one nation try to attack them while they are vulnerable. And they're just sitting at the base of this mountain waiting for things to happen. They clearly feel as though they need to have something lead them. This is why they talk about the fact that these are the gods who led you up out of Egypt. They need somebody to lead them. They need a little bit of contentment. They need strength to make it. There's all kinds of things that we could talk about. They need. Moses could have prayed for all of these things. He could have prayed for every single one of those things. And let's be very clear. The Israelites needed every single one of those things. They needed comfort. They needed strength. They needed leadership. They needed courage to walk forward. They needed all of those things. But what they needed first was for God not to crush them. The point of intercession here is that Moses knows what the main thing is and he prays then for the main thing. The main thing is not that they have all that good stuff that they lack. The main thing is that they are alive to get that good stuff. Without that, nothing else would matter. When you intercede for people, you need to know the real point of intercession. We want good things for people. We, we want to pray for good things for people. We want to pray for healings for people from cancer. We want shelter and comfort to come to them. We want to pray for wells to be dug in Africa, for peace to come to the Middle East. Those are good things to pray for. And I'm not trying to belittle them at all. Those are immensely good things to pray for. Thinking about kids in Africa dying because they can't get fresh water is a travesty that we all never make light of here. And war and anger and murder are never things that we will make light of. But in light, those great needs, weighty 
heavy needs in light of an eternity of suffering and death before God float around like the cottonwood that has been flying around here lately. It's, it's no heavier. It's a light momentary affliction compared to the weight of eternity that rests over these people. Praying for that stuff and missing the fact that they need Christ, missing the fact that we ought to intercede for them, that God would take his word to them, is missing the point of intercession altogether. What's even worse than that? Sometimes, friends, those afflictions that we pray might leave people who do not know the Lord, pains and sufferings, difficulties that are in their lives. Have you ever stopped to think that maybe those things are there for their good? As we study through Amos, the elders went through it not too terribly long ago. One passage always stuck with me. When he's talking about the northern kingdom, He's talking about the difficulties that he pressed down upon the northern kingdom. In Amos 4, verses 6 through 8, he says this, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. And we read that and we're like, good orthodontic care? That's great, God. Very kind of you. But that's not what it means. Listen to what it means. A lack of bread in all your places. It's hard for teeth to get dirty when you can't eat. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you. When you were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain to one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. This is repeated throughout that fourth chapter. Blight and mildew, pestilence, war, and swords were given to them, and yet they did not return to the God that they knew. They refused to return to God. Friend, are you going to pray that that stuff is taken away from people? Should we pray that the very things that God uses to draw people to himself might be removed from them? If it takes cancer... To get someone to move from unbelief to belief, give them cancer. If it takes financial ruin, give it to them. If it takes losing a hand, Jesus says, it is better to go into the kingdom of God without a hand than it is to go to hell with a full body. So we will work and we will strive to provide those needs for people. It's not that those needs don't matter, and it's not that we don't want people of the world to be comforted. We will work to comfort them. We will work to give them those things that they need. But we don't see those things as ends in themselves, but we see those things as a way to provide the gospel to them as well. We will dig wells in Africa. If for no other reason than to tell them of one who is living water himself, we will pray for peace in the Middle East if for no other reason, that we might show to them the one who breaks down all of the walls of hostility. We will pray that people are healed from cancer and other maladies to tell them that there is one day going to be a resurrection where you will no longer feel those things if you are in Christ. You see, none of those things are the main thing. They are, they are drops of water on a tongue that is parched. 
when Christ is the fullness of the lake and the living water that will quench their thirst. Know the point of intercession. Moses doesn't pray for their good things. Moses prays for the only thing that matters. Secondly, know the people of intercession. Know the people of intercession. They needed all of those things, but notice what, notice what Moses doesn't do. Moses doesn't pray about how good they are. They, they needed revelation from God. They received revelation from God. The problem here is that they've already heard God say, you are not to make any images of me. And yet they turned around very quickly, God says, and made an image of me. It didn't take them long. I told them, don't do this. And I look around and 30 seconds later, what are they doing? They're molding a golden calf, he says. It's very interesting, the language that is used here. I've mentioned this before, but it, it's just helpful for us. The gods that they make end up resembling them. So what does God call them? They are a stiff-necked people. You know what also has a really stiff neck that you could put like a yoke on and it can plow for you? It's cattle. It's a calf. Now, there's a way of looking at this, and, and somebody like G.K. Beale, who has written a really good book about this, can say, you become what you worship. So you make a golden calf, you become a stiff-necked person. But it works in the other direction as well. They made a calf because that's who they are. They are stiff-necked people, so they made a stiff-necked God. In other words, they took of the good things that God had given them and rejecting what God had told them to do, decided to make a God in their image, decided to make a God that looked like them, that functioned like them. Listen, when you give revelation away, when you say, I'm not going to hear what revelation has to say, I'm not going to hear how God has spoken to us in scripture, but instead, I'm going to form God for my own reason and my own ability. Don't be surprised when that God looks a lot like what you want him to look like or her. Or it. They did exactly what God had told them not to do. And so what Moses doesn't do, knowing who they are, knowing what they have done, he doesn't come up and say, God, listen, I want you to take it easy on them. They've got all of this baggage, you see. They've got all these problems that they, they kind of collected from Egypt. God, spare them because they're trying they're trying. I mean, they're misguided, but they're giving it their all. They, they made a huge golden calf. That's not nothing, right? He, he doesn't come to them and say, listen, they're, they're pretty frail and weak people, okay? He doesn't come to them and say, listen, God, they just don't know better. They're ignorant people. They just don't know who you are. Give them a little bit of time. Let them come to know you a little bit, and then we'll see what happens. Just give them a second chance. He doesn't come to them and say, God, spare them because of their devotion. After all, Aaron does say that we are going to offer these sacrifices to the Lord. They haven't forgotten about you. They're still devoted to you, even though they are confused about what they're actually doing. He doesn't say, listen, God, spare them because they have great needs. They're, they're just trying to cling to any sort of port in a storm. And so they're, they're latching on to anything that they can get. No, Moses doesn't do any of that. Uh, Moses doesn't even really talk about them, other than to mention that he doesn't want God to crush them. 
Because Moses knows, as we ought to, there is nothing inherent in the people that means that God shouldn't crush them. God should crush them. They deserve to be crushed. And so Moses can't come to God and say, listen, there's this aspect of who they are. There's this character trait. There's this quality in them that should keep you from crushing them. No, there's nothing there. And friends, when you intercede for people, you need to be really careful, very careful about interceding for people because you think that there's a quality or a characteristic in them that God should find worth in. Johnny's a really nice guy, God. He's really kind. He's been good to my family. I pray that you will spare him from this. Dave is is quite the leader. We could really use him in the church. I pray that you might save him, that we we can use him. When you, when you pray like that, you realize what you're doing. You are softly and destructively bringing in some sort of works righteousness into salvation. That God is looking down at this person and you were saying there is something in him that is of worth to you, God. Save them because of X, Y, Z. As though they are somehow worthy because they have kindness in their heart or because they're wealthy or because they have influence or because of anything that they might have that has impacted you You can come to God and you want to pray for them because they are somehow worthy of God's salvation. They're not worthy of God's salvation. And what's worse, not only are you bringing in some sort of work salvation, you're coming very close to implying that God ought to save people and ought to have mercy on people because of what they have. You are condemning people who don't have that. God saves people not because there is any merit in them whatsoever. He saves purely out of his own love and his own kindness and his own justice. It is only because of God's unmerited, unconditioned favor for people. Aaron did nothing to deserve the calling of God to be a priest. Abram did nothing to deserve the calling of God to be the father of the nation of Israel. Paul did absolutely nothing to deserve the calling as an apostle. You, friend, have absolutely nothing to commend you to God, only the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you on the cross. That is your only plea, even as we talked about before the throne of God above. I have a strong, a strong, one strong and perfect plea. Do not pray for people because they are kind of good. Don't pray for people and ask for God to help them because of anything that they have. Know the people of intercession. When we ask for God to interact, we're asking for God to intercede on behalf of people who have nothing to offer God. Listen to part of a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. So that thus it is, that natural men are held in the hand of God. Over the pit of hell, They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those who are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate his anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up one moment. The devil is waiting for them Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them. And would, 
fain lay hold on them and swallow them up. The fire, pent up in their own hearts, is struggling to break out. They have no interest in any mediator. There are no means within reach that can be of any security to them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an incensed God. 200 years later, we would say this. The only thing that keeps the rest of the entirety of the world from being crashing down into hell is because God's kindness to people. They deserve nothing from him. John Edwards says earlier that it is simply because of the pleasure of God's will. The only reason they don't is because God doesn't want them to. There is no justice that is keeping God from doing this. There's no neutrality that is keeping God from doing this. Pray for people, not on the basis of who they are, but the third point, know the power of intercession. The question then is, why does Moses' intercession work? What makes verse 14 come true? Why does the Lord relent? What keeps the unobliged forbearance of an incensed God continuing? Why doesn't he remove his hand and allow us all to fall into hell? Moses knows very quickly that the power doesn't come from him. Notice what he says almost immediately. He says, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power? Moses is not confused as to the relationship between God and Moses and the people. Moses knows very well that he is not the one who has led them out. In one sense, yes, he was the man who was tasked with the job, but he knows very well that it is the work of the Lord who has led them out. He is not confused by all of this. He knows that the power to rescue them and therefore the power to sustain them cannot be found in him. So he doesn't plead on basis of who he is. He doesn't plead on the basis of who they are. The power doesn't come from the people, but the power comes from the person of God alone. Moses does not take time to dance around, but he gets to the heart of the matter. He says, first, think of what the Egyptians will say. You ransomed them out of Egypt. In Exodus 9.16, you said, For this purpose I have raised Pharaoh up to show you my power, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. He says, God, you put the world on notice that this event was going to make your character known. If you lead your people out here and you burn them at the foot of this mountain, what is that going to say to the Egyptians about who you are? And secondly, he says, you promised Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that this would be your people. You promised them that these people would be the ones you lead into the promised land. You promised on the basis of who you are. You staked your own godhood on this. You staked everything that makes you God on this. So if you burn them up, what happens to that promise? What happens to you? In both of these things, Moses' prayer is heard because he is praying for what God has already revealed to him. He knows why God delivered his people from Egypt. He knows why God has been faithful to this people who have never been faithful to him. 
He knows why. It's because of God's own word. What does Moses do here? He simply utters back to God the very word that God had uttered in the first place. And why did he do that? Why did God even lead him down this path? Why did God threaten to kill him when Moses says it is impossible, threaten to kill not Moses, but threaten to kill the people of God when Moses says it's impossible for you to do this? Why did God do that? I will tell you, it's not for God's sake. Nor is it even for Moses' sake. Friend, it's for you. This isn't kept for Moses. Moses didn't need to remind God of this. This is kept for you, so that you would see how you are to pray for people in the world. You pray for them not on the basis of who they are. You don't think that your prayers work because of who you are, but we pray for them because of who God is. Christ says that he has come not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many in Mark 10.45. In Matthew 9, 36-38, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners book of Revelation. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. God sent his son into the world to save sinners, not because the sinners themselves were lovely, not because there was any good in them alone, not because they were worthy of their salvation, not because they earned grace, not because they said good prayers, not because they tried real, real hard, not because of any of that. He did it solely because he is gracious and magnificently beneficent to people who call upon him, even though they are unworthy of an iota of his attention. He knew all of us were his enemies, and he saved us anyway. He knew that we were all sinners in his sight, and yet still he sent his son. He knew that we were all rebellious against him, and outside of him changing our hearts, that none of us would turn to him, and yet he still came and did what he did. Sending his son to die on a cross to take our wrath upon him, and there to give us the freedom of life in his resurrection. This is the kind of God we serve, so pray. So pray. Let us pray that the the unmerited favor of Christ might be known to all people. Let us pray for those who seem both near and for those who seem far away, for those who seem like they're on the verge, and for those whose hearts have been so hardened you have no hope outside of God's own interaction of actually having them repent and come to faith. Pray that God will change hearts and save sinners because he has stated that he will do so time and time and time again. Let us pray, not because of our might and goodness, 
nor especially because of the sinner's might or goodness, but because of God's might and goodness. Let us pray because God's election makes sure our success. That there are people in the world whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life that he will open up and read on the final day who do not know of him yet. So that we can go and we can share people from every tribe, nation, language. Many of those have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. And yet we are assured that when he opens those books, those names will be there. Let us pray for that. Let us pray because people are ready for hell and our intercession for them matters. Let us pray for our prayers change us. And the right kind of prayer will give us a longing to see what has happened for us who know salvation, to go and to take that salvation to the utmost ends of the world. Let us pray. Let's pray. Father, you are kind to us in many ways. Your kindness is shown to us not only in your forbearance and allowing the world to continue that we might have come to know Jesus Christ, our Lord. We do not take that lightly. You have tarried in sending your son back to the earth that you might bring in the fullness of your harvest. Father God, part of that tarrying means that we have been saved as well. Your patient and your kindness with us has not gone unnoticed. But even more than that, you've not simply allowed us to live, but you have given us your son that we might live before you forever, never to face hell. Father God, we deserve none of that, absolutely none of it. It is only by your grace and your kindness that we stand before you, praising you and worshiping you. There is not one person in here, none of us deserved what you have given to us. So Father, I pray for those who are lost, who have never heard this message, whether there are some here, Father, that they might know that there is nothing that they can do, nothing that they can say, nothing that they have in them, no inherent qualities or characteristics that will ever make them appeal to you. In and of themselves, Father, they are only trash to be burned, but in Christ, they are a precious possession to you. You would move heaven and earth for. So, Father, I pray for those who are lost, because Christ has come into the world to save them, that you might save them that you might open their hearts to the word this morning, whether they are in this church, whether they are in any other church, that they might hear the call of the gospel that Jesus Christ is enough to not only negate the wrath of God, but to provide a fullness of life for them before the throne of God forevermore, that they can be inheritors of the kingdom of God. We pray, Father, that they might come to hear that and that your harvest might begin because you are worthy of the praise and adoration of the saints whom you chose before the foundation of the world. We pray, God, for that. For this is why you've come into the world. This is why you incarnated yourself. This is why you died on a cross, that you might ransom people. Make that true today. Make it true in our lives from evermore that we are fishers of men, seeking only to bring you glory in all things. We ask for all of this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.